0: Hello, and welcome to the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast. Today, we don't have a special guest, and instead, I'll be sharing with you the first part of our special guide to civics. Here at the O'Connor Institute, we've produced a guide to the foundational principles of American democracy called Civics, What You Need to Know. It's also available on our website, but we thought it'd be helpful to have an audio version for those of you who like to listen on your commute or wherever you are that you enjoy listening to our podcast. So we hope you enjoy this production of Civics, What You Need to Know by the O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network. Civics, What You Need to Know. There are a number of civics courses out there that list or summarize the basic building blocks of American government. How many representatives do we have? How long is the president's term? And so on. But if you really want to understand how America's government works and what makes it unique, you need to understand what lies beneath those building blocks and where they came from. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the founder and namesake of the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute, has put it this way. Quote, I've seen firsthand how vital it is for all citizens to understand our constitution and unique system of government and participate actively in their communities. It is through this shared understanding of who we are That we can follow the approaches that have served us best over time, working collaboratively together in communities and in government to solve problems, putting country and the common good above party and self-interest, and holding our key governmental institutions accountable." Having a thorough knowledge of the foundations of our democracy provides people with the context and the tools to take effective action as citizens. Scholars and educational organizations over the years have compiled various short lists of the principles that are critical to the functioning of the American system. This guide will address four of the foundational principles. Number one, representative democracy. Two, federalism. Three, individual rights. And four, separation of powers. Each of these is codified in and protected by the U.S. Constitution. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, Representative democracy. The term democracy originates from the ancient Greek, meaning rule of the people. This contrasts with monarchy or dictatorship, rule of a single person, and aristocracy, rule of an elite. In classical Athens, democracy meant that the people as a whole, in practice meaning all free adult male citizens, would gather regularly to determine and vote on all laws for the country. Voting was by majority rule, and the assembly had essentially unlimited power. Citizens would also gather to vote on the outcome of criminal trials, as most famously in the trial of Socrates. Poor judgment by the assembled citizens in cases like this led Athenian democracy being heavily criticized in its own time by intellectuals such as Thucydides, Plato, and Aristotle. Athenian democracy lasted 186 years, And its underlying philosophy has come to be known as direct democracy. This system, where the people vote directly on all of the laws, was never revived again at any major scale, though it does exist in some parts of Switzerland today. In its place arose representative democracy. In a representative democracy, citizens elect representatives who, in turn, run the government and vote on the laws governing society. Representative democracy has many advantages over direct democracy, including... One, part time or full time elected representatives can look into the pros and cons of each proposed law in detail, in a way that citizens in a direct democracy usually do not have the time to do. Representatives, quote, refine and enlarge the public views, as James Madison put it in The Federalist, number 10. The second advantage of representative democracy a division of labor is created where lawmakers can work while the rest of the citizenry can continue to go about their regular business. In direct democracy, by contrast, people would regularly have to stop doing their jobs to come to the forum and vote. The third advantage, citizens who wish to run for office and enter government can prepare ahead of time, seeking out additional education to study and understand the complexities of lawmaking. Number four, government is simpler, nimbler, and faster thanks to the need to coordinate a vastly smaller number of lawmakers, usually only several hundred, compared to a 6,000-person quorum requirement at certain points in the Athenian system. And number five, in the form of a direct democracy, a persuasive orator could convince large numbers of people to vote one way or another based on little evidence, leading to a mob mentality. As James Madison put it in the Federalist number 55, quote, had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob, end quote. In Madison's view, elected representatives are more likely to, quote, best discern the true interest of their country, end quote, less likely to fall prey to narrow self-interest and will therefore make choices, quote, more consonant to the public good than the people themselves convened for the purpose, end quote. Representative democracy first arose in the Roman Republic, which ran from 509 to 29 BC, where citizens could vote on the holders of office at all levels of government. The American founding fathers, including James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, studied the Roman Republic in great detail and took several terms from that era, including the Senate and the Capitol. Representatives today can be elected at all levels, from the local to the national, school board members, judges, mayors, state legislators, governors, and members of Congress, or in other countries, members of parliament. Drawbacks of representative democracy include the fact that if you, a citizen, want to change, propose, or eliminate a law, you need to convince your representative to vote your way rather than having the power to vote on it yourself directly. This is complicated by the fact that elected officials inevitably represent a group of people that do not share the same opinions. Each member of the U.S. House of Representatives today represents more than 700,000 people. That can make choosing the proper representative for a given group through campaigns and elections, which occur only every two years at the most, messy and contentious. However, the advantages discussed above far outweigh these disadvantages, which is why all democracies today are some form of representative democracy. A democracy formally limited by a constitution is called a constitutional democracy or a constitutional republic. Constitutions contain guardrails that restrict the activities and lawmaking power of government to within certain parameters, And cannot be changed with a simple majority vote. In other words, unlike the unwritten British Constitution, which can be changed by Parliament directly, the U.S. Constitution takes precedence over ordinary law and places limits on Congress. Laws that conflict with the Constitution can be declared by the courts to be unconstitutional and thrown out. Any amendments to the Constitution require a two thirds vote of both the House of Representatives and the Senate, as well as ratification by three fourths of the states. At the time of the founding, the term democracy referred only to direct democracy. For James Madison, the father of the Constitution, the main difference between a democracy and a republic was that republics included elected representatives. See, for example, the Federalist No. 10. Madison argued that having elected representatives would allow the government to extend over a wider area than was possible in a direct democracy. In addition, electing representatives from many large districts was viewed as a way of preventing people across the country from forming into a small number of special interests that would dominate national politics. The Founding Fathers were extremely wary of direct democracy, which, left unchecked, can lead to a, quote, tyranny of the majority, where simple majority votes can crush minorities. Because of this, they designed the American system of government with mechanisms that provide some distance between the general public and and the way people are chosen to lead the government. For example, the Constitution provides for election of the president not directly by the people, but by a separate group called the Electoral College. Each state has a number of votes in the Electoral College equal to their number of representatives in the U.S. House, plus two for their senators. And before the passage of the 17th Amendment to the Constitution in 1913, U.S. senators were elected by state legislatures rather than by popular vote. In addition, the constitutional framework helps cool temporary passions and refine and filter the will of the people. Representatives, senators, and presidents are all elected for different durations and by a different group of voters. Representatives are elected directly by the people in local districts for two-year terms. Senators are elected by the states for six years and presidents for four years. Major nationwide changes in law therefore require a robust majority of the people distributed across the country and maintained for a number of years. The idea of the states having power and being able to make decisions separately from the federal government will lead us to the second major piece of the U.S. governmental structure, and that's federalism. Federalism refers to the concept that governmental power is shared between the governments of states on one hand and the federal national government on the other with each having certain areas of jurisdiction into which the other cannot intrude. The United States was the first country to develop and use this system. Today, roughly 25 countries use some version of federalism, covering 40% of the world's population. At the time the Constitution was being drafted, there was great concern over creating a federal government with too much power. The American revolutionaries had seen the power of a too-strong central government firsthand by being subjects of the British Empire. So the system of federalism was developed in order to preserve the power of the states to control most aspects of daily life. Additionally, to ensure that large states would not dominate smaller states at the federal level, the U.S. Senate was designed to have exactly two representatives from every state regardless of population. The other House of Congress, the House of Representatives, has proportional representation for each state. The Constitution gives the federal government the specific authority to do only 17 things called the enumerated powers, plus the ability to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper, end quote, to implement those 17 things. Here are the enumerated powers summarized. Number one, to tax and spend to pay U.S. debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare. Number two, to borrow money. Number three to regulate foreign and interstate commerce. Number four, to establish nationwide laws on naturalization, who can become a citizen and bankruptcy. Number five, to coin money. Note that only coins are specifically mentioned in the constitution, not paper money. Number six, to punish counterfeiters. Number seven, to establish post offices and post roads. Number eight, to issue patents. Number nine, to create additional courts below the Supreme Court. Number ten to define and punish crimes committed at sea. Number 11, to declare war. Number 12, to raise and maintain an army. Number 13, to raise and maintain a navy. Number 14, to set rules and regulations for the army and navy. Number 15, to call upon state militias, which today are each state's national guard, to enforce federal law, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Number 16, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. Again, where militia means each state's national guard. And finally, the last enumerated power of the federal government is to govern the District of Columbia, D.C. The ninth and 10th Amendments to the Constitution clarify that any powers not explicitly granted to the federal government in the Constitution are to be reserved, quote, to the states respectively or to the people, end quote. One of the intended outcomes of federalism was for the states to be laboratories of democracy though so that exact term came much later in the 20th century. States are able to pass laws and try various public policies at a smaller scale than the national level based on the needs of their own communities. States can have very different laws on everything from levels of taxation to criminal justice, health care, education, and environmental regulation. Laws that are successful at a state level can be replicated by other states or used as the basis for national legislation. States' Rights During the country's early years, Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Party tended to prefer a stronger central government, while Thomas Jefferson and his Democratic-Republican Party preferred stronger state governments that could stand up to the central government and keep it within its bounds. Over time, as the country expanded and new territories were added to the United States, the tension between state versus federal power became inextricably intertwined with the question of the expansion of slavery. In the run-up to the Civil War, Southern states claimed it was their right to continue and expand the institution of slavery, despite growing opposition from the rest of the country. They also claimed that states had a right to ignore federal law, a process known as nullification, and had the right to secede from the United States and form their own country if they no longer wanted to be subject to the federal government. In 1861, following the election of Abraham Lincoln as president on an anti-slavery platform, South Carolina made good on this threat and did secede, setting off the Civil War. Ten other southern states seceded as well, establishing the Confederate States of America, usually shortened to just the Confederacy. The federal government and the remaining states that had not seceded, which were called the Union, prevailed in the war after 600,000 casualties the deadliest war in American history, leading to the abolition of slavery through the 13th Amendment to the Constitution and the reuniting of the country. Even after the Civil War and the defeat of the Confederacy, however, states' rights tended to win out in disputes with the federal government. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution, passed in 1868, held that, quote, "...no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws." End quote. This is known as the Equal Protection Clause. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 built on this, prohibiting discrimination against African Americans in public transportation and public accommodations like schools, hotels, and businesses. However, the Supreme Court ruled that law completely unconstitutional in 1883, saying the federal government's power in the 14th Amendment was limited to preventing racial discrimination by state governments themselves, not the activities of private individuals or corporations within the states. This opened the door to the imposition of what came to be known as Jim Crow laws by the southern states. These laws legalized segregation and prevented African Americans from voting, living in certain places, patronizing certain businesses, and attending certain schools. The 1896 Supreme Court case Plessy v. Ferguson ruled that laws requiring segregation were legal as long as the conditions for white and non-white people were, quote, separate but equal, end quote. For 40 years following Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court continued to strike down most efforts by Congress to expand federal programs and regulations, preventing intervention on issues like state-sanctioned segregation, as well as minimum wage laws, child labor laws, and regulation of monopolies. This represented a forced continuation of the limited role the federal government had played since the founding of the country. How limited was this role? As late as 1930, half of all federal employees worked for the post office. Today, that number is only 18%. Even state governments remained relatively small, constrained by other Supreme Court decisions that gave precedence to agreements between private individuals over government regulation. That situation began to change with the Progressive Era under President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909, when government inspections and rules for workplace and food safety were first initiated. Then, during the Great Depression in the 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt dramatically expanded the reach of the federal government through a suite of programs and regulations called the New Deal. Most Americans will recognize the New Deal programs that still exist today, including the Social Security retirement system, unemployment insurance, government guarantees of bank deposits through the FDIC, and home mortgages, as well as low-rent public housing. The New Deal also created new agencies like the Works Progress Administration, which became the largest employer in the entire country during the nation's severe economic downturn. The Supreme Court struck down some of the early New Deal programs and laws as unconstitutional, saying, as it had in prior cases like the 1875 Civil Rights Act, that Congress and the federal government had exceeded their authority. This time, as its justification, the court relied upon a narrow view of Congress's power to regulate commerce. However, starting in 1937, the Supreme Court changed course on its understanding of congressional power over interstate commerce, upholding the validity of the New Deal and an expanded role for the federal government. This set the stage for further expansion of federal programs in later years. 30 years later in the 1960s, President Lyndon Johnson would use this authority to spearhead the creation of Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and other federal anti-poverty programs known as the Great Society. Johnson's successor, Richard Nixon, established additional federal agencies such as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, known as OSHA while Nixon's successor, Jimmy Carter, established the U.S. Department of Education. the end result of the roughly 70 years of federal expansion from the progressive era through the Carter presidency was a dramatically altered relationship between the states and Washington, D.C., compared to the previous historical norm. Yet this slow, gradual transition had followed the demands of changing public opinion and the needs of each historical moment. Even today, debate continues to rage on the true meaning of federalism, and the proper allocation of power between the federal government and the states. The Democratic Party today usually favors a stronger federal government, while the Republican Party tends to prefer stronger state governments. But the civil rights era would bring one common thread to light. Neither the federal government, nor state governments, nor private individuals or corporations could violate individual rights. And Individual rights will be the topic of our next installment. Thank you for listening to the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast and our production of Civics, What You Need to Know. Again, you can read our guide online at oconnoreln.org. Thanks for listening.